Deep pattern, downfield, touchdown Miami! What a throw, Devontae Parker! Holy smokes, what a drive! What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Winkfield, and on today's show, we are continuing the draft preview series as we take a look at the running back class with USA Today's Doug Farrar. We're going to break the class down by tiers, talk about the fall off from the top three to the next group of backs, where the best value is, the best pass catchers, the best pass protectors, the best between the tackles, runners, all that good stuff you've come to know and love from these draft preview podcasts, plus Chris Greer met with the media on Wednesday morning. We're going to get to all the comments and break down everything he said in that press conference. All of that and a whole bunch more on this edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. Before we jump into this Chris Greer presser, if you can't tell by my Twitter timeline, and if you're not following me, go ahead and bang that follow button at Wingfield NFL. But if you're following me on Twitter, you know I'm back in Miami. I'm at the stadium working every day, getting ready for this draft and getting ready for the MiamiDolphins.com content as well as the Drive Time podcast content and the live draft party. Come check out me, John Congemi, and Channing Crowder as your main stage hosts. We're going to have a plethora of guests to go along with that as well. So come check us out on Thursday night. But I'm at the stadium every day. I'm tweeting about kind of how surreal this whole thing is. And it's kind of like the dream job part two, because last year everything was put on pause when I got this job back in late February, two weeks before the pandemic became a part of our lives. And now things, they're opening up slowly. We're still wearing masks. We're still socially distancing, fully vaccinated, all that fun stuff. But it's kind of like a reintroduction into the job for me, being around Hard Rock Stadium, walking out to the field and, and you know just purging my inbox from the stands and looking down at the field that I have watched hundreds and hundreds of Dolphins games. It's all just a, a magical, magical dream come true to be there. The food they serve, everything about the damn place is top-notch, five stars, world-class. You just can't believe how great this organization treats their employees. But there was one little problem on Tuesday I ran into. We have a lunch program you opt into and you can eat at the stadium. And there was no soda available. And I'm yeah, kind of addicted to soda. Like, I thrive on caffeine. You've seen the Bang promotion I've done, the Diet Pepsis that I drink. And I go through that stuff heavily. So Tuesday, I didn't have soda with my lunch for the first time that I since I really can care to admit. It's it's probably been a couple of years. And there's like no flavor in that. And I just had this taste, this yearning for the soda in the afternoon. And then I finally get home to drink it and my head starts to hurt. Like you need caffeine in your system. Is that common? Like is there is that what happens when you don't drink caffeine? That's a diatribe, a whole nother off-the-rails topic for another podcast, but I just wanted to bring it up because I didn't realize how reliant I was on caffeine, but here we are. Okay, let's go ahead and pivot this thing over now to the Chris Greer presser from Wednesday morning talking all things Dolphins draft now just one week away. Let's go ahead and play the hits here from Chris Greer, starting with an opening statement regarding the George Floyd death and Tuesday's verdict. Uh, Good morning, guys. Uh, uh, Appreciate everyone coming on this morning, Uh, but I thought there was something really need to talk about 
Um, before we get started, you know, obviously with the George Floyd uh, verdict last night, so I just think it's, uh, you guys know me, that I'm not a prepared statement type of person in doing stuff, um, but I just think it's important for me to organize my thoughts, and I wanted to put them down after the last few hours, and uh, like everyone, kind of dealing with, you know, what transpired yesterday. So um, yesterday's verdict was a very emotional day for many. You know, for me as an African-American, uh, there was a sense of relief and sadness. You know, George Floyd was senselessly taken from family and friends. His story was one of many that have taken place in our communities over the years. It's 2021, and yet people of color are still asking for equality and justice. The jury in Minnesota served notice that police brutality is unacceptable and people will be held accountable for their actions. We as a people should all be touched by the raw emotions of joy and relief by the verdict. The justice system worked for people of color yesterday. However, we cannot forget that a life was lost. I am proud of the work our organization has done in the South Florida community over the years, led by Steve Ross, Tom Garfinkel, and Brian Flores. Our players are actively out in the community trying to make a real difference. There's a lot of work to still be done in terms of reform and equality. We will continue to do more and ask others to do so as well across the NFL. We have the opportunity to make things better for everyone in our country. There are a lot of good people that want to make a difference. It's encouraging to hear and see the number of white people in big companies willing to be uncomfortable and speak out against systematic racism. There are a lot of good law enforcement officials who want change for the better. These are good men and women who uphold their oaths. We need to support them as well. We have made tremendous advancements in our way of life, except for dealing with race. It's not just people of color being affected. Look at what's happening with all the hate being directed towards the Asian community uh, right now. I'm hopeful, but not naive to think that this verdict will change things. Politics and rhetoric have created a great divide in our country. We as an organization believe in bringing people together and valuing all human life. And I hope our country can move towards that too. Well, there are certainly no words that I can use to even come close to that message, but I will just say this, working for this organization makes me so, so beyond proud. I'm just going to leave it at that. Let's get to the next football question here, or the first football question rather for Coach, who was asked about the draft board maneuvering going up or down rather from three back up to six and some of the conversations or or reports out there in the media right now about fielding possible calls to move again off that sixth pick. We'll always listen to everything. We've shown that. And I think you owe it to your team and your organization to always listen to any offers that uh, may or may not come. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, as the draft falls and and gets towards our pick, if, you know, someone wants to call and, and they make an aggressive pitch to us, we'll uh, evaluate it, look at the board and and look at our options and we'll make the decision that's best for the Miami Dolphins at that point. And that's about as basic as it gets, right? He wouldn't be doing his job if he wasn't taking in every single phone call, listening to every single offer, engaging the entire market. I mean, a, a person selling their house doesn't just become steadfast on one idea and commit to that and not consider other offers from potential other buyers. Like, you always want to be gauging the market. So that's what Chris Queer and this Miami Dolphins staff and front office has certainly done. Up next, Chris was asked a question that 
He answered in one word, which was enough for me personally with the question, but it was about, do you regret the decision to move off number three if any certain player comes off the board that you did not anticipate? No, I think, you know, when we made our uh, move, we, we had targeted, you know, a number of players that we liked, uh, we're comfortable with getting. So I think with us, um, when you make a move like we did and doing what we did to get back up, um, we're very comfortable where we are. But again, we said we'll always evaluate it and, and drafts change, as you know, um, people fall for reasons unknown or, or you know, people uh, select players for their roster based on their needs. So, um, you know, we're comfortable where we are. We feel very good where we are and, um, and we, we won't have any regrets. I mean, doesn't that just seem so, like, obvious? Like, do you think Chris would put himself in a position where there's like a doomsday scenario where the trap door could fall off from under him. Of course, there are players they feel comfortable that they believe there are enough guys that somebody they feel great about will be there at number six. And if there's a better offer on the table, then you consider it. It's, it's pretty straightforward to me. Chris answers that question pretty straightforward as well. Let's go ahead and pick this up here with the next question, which refers to the evaluation of opt-out players versus players who did play the 2020 season. No, you know, Safford, I think it's, it's such a 2020 is such a unique year, um, you know, with the pandemic and, uh, you know, all players have reasons for opting out. And, you know, I don't think it's right for us to hold it against any player, whether it's family or, you know, we don't know all the circumstances, you know, until you get to this point, you talk to players, but uh, a lot of players opted out. You know, you also have schools that some schools play four games, some people play 10, you know what I mean? So, However you look at it, it wasn't going to be an apples to apples comparison around. So, um, but, you know, for us to sit here and judge players on opt-outs for the reasons why it, it's, it's unfair. And I think it's unrealistic. Let's continue here with a question regarding the decision to make the trade and the team's thinking behind jumping around the draft board from three to 12, 12 back up to six. We'd had a number of teams call us, you know, all, you know, through there talking about uh, coming up to three and, you know, um, we were, you know, comfortable being where we were. And, and once we evaluated and then, you know, obviously San Francisco um, was very aggressive, you know, um, John was, was great dealing with, he was very open and honest, transparent. And as we worked through it, you know, we thought that, you know, um, as the offers, as we talked through it and once they gave us the offer that, you know, we were comfortable with taking, you know, we decided it was, it was important for us also as well to get back, you know, into that top 10, and so, um, you know, once, you know, it looked like San Francisco could happen, we kind of, you know, reached out to a few teams, just gauging, you know, whether they would uh, move or not. And, you know, in Philadelphia was, you know, um, a very good partner working with Howie uh, did a good job with us um, in terms of what we were looking for and what we were looking to do. And, and I give them a lot of credit. There's a lot of teams that, you know, wanted to wait and wanted to wait and see and, uh, and it, you know, it takes guts to make a move like that. So I give San Francisco and Philadelphia both credit for doing it. Gosh, I just, I love that. Like you, you have this offer on the table. Like you said, San Francisco looks like it might happen. So we then got on the phone and looked at possible options to get back into the top 10, wind up finding a dance partner with Philadelphia there at six. So always thinking about the next move. It reminds me of that, that Puff Daddy video when he gets excited. What's next? What else can I do? I'm not done working yet. That's Chris Greer in this Miami Dolphins front office when it comes to draft picks and, and working the phones. Up next, Chris was asked about the trade compensation coming back for those trade downs and how Miami evaluated getting those picks in future years and how this team is set to build for now and the future. You know, at, at some point, 
you know, and I'm sure someone probably asked the question, you know, uh, we picked, you know, three guys in the first round last. We're going to keep adding young players and talent and growing and, and we feel good. So, you know, we feel really good about, you know, how things transpired for us. And I love this next question here from, I believe it was Cam Wolf of ESPN asked Chris about the principles of, you know, the Bill Parcells height, weight, speed, and the exceptions of those. And Chris obviously came from that Bill Parcells tree way back when, and he was asked whether the weight of a player is a, a reason to knock a player or size and, and how that has changed in modern football. Here's Chris talking about size of players in 2021. No, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's all part of the evaluation, but every player tells their own story is a different player, you know? So I think, you know, the league has changed as well. You know, there's more rules. It's more of an offensive league. I think uh, what's been evident is that there are a lot of smaller players that become really good players in this league as well. So um, you always value it. You always talk about it, but again, each player is, is, is their own case. And, uh, you know, um, those guys have shown that they've been good players, you know, at a high level of play in the SEC. And um, but that goes for a lot of players around the country. Um, I just think the game has changed a little bit. And I think these smaller players are given more room and, and, and freedom to uh, showcase their talents. Next, Chris was asked to evaluate weighing the value of his draft board compared to building around a young quarterback and the importance of getting pieces that support that young quarterback. You know, especially when you're. Um, picking up where we're picking and you're always looking at your team and, and, you know, and Tua is a big part of that. And so as we build around and what we're doing, yeah, you're always looking at, you know, what does your quarterback do best? Um, but you're also looking at weighing that versus, you know, the best players available and what you do for your team. Cause at the end of the day, it's, it's always about the team. It's not about one player, one pick, one person. And, uh, you know, you've heard Brian talk about, you know, team first players that um, fit right. So um, for us, you know, it is. It's just looking at for the right player, the right person, the right fit for our team, as well as, you know, uh, the mesh with the quarterback. And we'll stay on the topic of the quarterback there. And uh, Chris was asked, rather, about the offseason so far of Tonga Vailoa. No, the communication has been great. You know, um, you know, he's, he's been around as, you know, working hard. I know he's been working with the receivers. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a very competitive kid, as you know. And I think, you know, coming off the injury last year with, you know, no, no OTAs, you know, no mini camp, you know, and being you know, just thrown in right away, that's a hard transition, um, you know, especially coming through the rehab part of what he was doing. So, you know, he's healthy now. Um, you know, I've seen a couple of videos. I'm not on social media very much. And uh, he's been working very hard. I know our guys have been around and have popped in and out here. Um, Gustav said he's been, been great with the players and, and the receivers have been working. So, uh, like I said, it's he's going to take the next step. You know, the kid's been a winner everywhere he's been. And uh, really excited for him, especially to have an off season under his belt. And I think that'll be really important for him. Flipping it over to the defensive side of the ball, Chris was asked to evaluate some of the decisions in free agency uh, regarding edge rusher, but also the release of Kyle Van Noy. And Chris had an opportunity to open up and talk about the development of some young players that needed to see the field a little bit more in 2021. Yeah, no, Kyle did a a good job for us last year and um, provided a lot of things. And, um, you know, he helped us win 10 games, like a lot of uh, players on this roster that, are no longer here, you know, wish him the best, you know, um, but for us, we had a lot of, you know, we had some young players that were developing and um, we felt good about and, and those guys uh, need to get on the field. So, um, 
at the end of the day, it was decision we made as an organization going through it. We always talk about, you know, the roster at the end of the season uh, between Brian, myself, the coaches and the scouts. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it was a move we made. And, and in terms of the pass rush adjusting, uh, we feel good about it. Uh, we're like everything. We're always looking uh, to keep upgrading. So there's a, it's just such a unique year. Um, you know, with the pandemic, there's so many teams releasing players, players taking one-year deals on, on, on uh, cheaper, uh, below market value, I guess you could say, um, because of uh, the lower salary cap. So, you know, for us at the end of the day, you know, we'll just keep, you know, looking at uh, churning over the roster and then uh, we'll go through the draft here and then we'll keep looking at uh, free agents uh, that are on the streets as well. Continuing along here, one of my favorite quotes from Chris in this next bit and favorite themes of this press conference was about the development. And we'll get to my question for Chris here in just one second, but about how players are perceived in the building as they develop and go through meetings and practices and the way they work with their teammates as opposed to what is seen you know, 16 times a year on Sunday and what the fans might have as a perception. Here's Chris talking about development and the belief in players and getting contributions from guys they draft early, but also how important that development is going into their second, third, and fourth years and so on. Uh, you know, I think it all depends on uh, where they fall, Mike. At the end of the day, there's uh, some of these players, yeah, they'll be starters, impact players. But again, where, as you've heard Brian say, and I love this statement, is like, when you're coming in, no one's a starter, <laughs> you know, in April. Guys have to, these rookies have to come in. There's such a transition for them to learn. And and I think that's why you always see guys take those huge second-year jumps, you know, like Van Ginkle for us last year. And I think, uh, uh, you know, Mike G did it a few years ago, made a jump after, you know, rookie year or, you know, people were, you know, unsure of him. And I think uh, with all these guys, it's, it's you preach patience for them a little bit, but I know because guys are first-round, second-round picks, you know, um, you'd like them to be impact players right away. And they may be, but it may be subtle to where the coaching staff and the personnel staff, we all feel good about it. And you're just making, you know, waiting for for the public to see it. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, they, they could be stars, but again, the, the players make their own uh, make their own way and create their own jobs on the team here. And Brian's created a great environment here of competitiveness. And that's what love about our, our guys here. You know, I think that's why we won 10 games last year. Guys here generally know it's about competition and, and, and taking care of each other. And, and that's a, an important thing. And let's go ahead and finish it off with my question for Dolphins general manager, Chris Greer. Hey, Chris, good morning. Thanks for doing this with us. Um, I was curious, how much does Flo and his coaching staff's ability to develop talent, like you mentioned with Van Ginkle and Gasicki, how much does that kind of weigh into the decision to acquire as much draft capital as you guys have accumulated the last couple of years? Yeah, you know, that's part of it. You know, we're not afraid to make picks. You know, Travis, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we'll make the picks. But yeah, we have great confidence that this coaching staff has shown that they, they can develop players and, and get the best out of them. And, and so that's the exciting part of it is that, um, you know, listening to them, they, the thought process and watching those guys coach every day and, and the details that, you know, Brian and the staff are on is, is what makes it fun here. And, and the players know that and they appreciate it. And, um, and finding those right type of guys that love to work and do everything is, um, is very important because we know those players can get even better. And so that's the exciting part of, of working with Brian and his staff. So plenty of good stuff there from Chris Greer, Dolphins GM. You can find that interview in its entirety or press conference, I should say, up on YouTube as well as the team page on MiamiDolphins.com. 
Really good content there from Chris. Let's go ahead and finish out this lengthy edition of the Drive Time Podcast with my interview with USA Today's Doug Farrar as we wrap up the positional preview for the draft with the running back class. Last one, we've done it all so far. Let's get to my interview with Doug Farrar. And riding shotgun with us now on the Drive Time Podcast is the NFL editor for USA Today. He does great work regarding all things NFL and draft and everything in between. And he's holding it down in the Pacific Northwest out in beautiful Seattle. Doug Farrar. <laughs> Doug, how the hell are you doing, man? A Seattle for the win. <laughs> I love it. I, like a week of clear skies and 70 degrees, which we don't tell people, as you know, because we don't. It rains all the time and it's miserable. Don't yeah. Come <laughs> yeah. Four months of the year, you can't leave your house. <laughs> well, we are here to talk about something besides weather and a position group that has a unique tie between your current hometown up there in Seattle and my current hometown in South Florida with Miles Gaskin and Savon Ahmed. And, and, you know, the three of us have made the pilgrimage, as it were, from the Pacific Northwest to South Florida. So let's go ahead and start there with the current Dolphins running back roster. Both these guys, Doug, are sub 200 pound guys, but offer a kind of slashing style to their game. Now, Savon only played a very limited basis last year, but Miles was a future feature back for the 10 or 11 games that he was healthy for. What did you make of Miles Gaskin's 2020 season with the Dolphins had in the backfield last year? I think he's a good back. He was, I mean, he's productive in college. He's one of the few backs, I believe, ever to have four 1,000 yard seasons in, in the NCAA. Um, you know, I, I think, and Ahmed, he made my, I have a thing called Secret Superstars that I do in season where I take guys who are, you know, hey, we should be talking about, I think week 10 against the Chargers, he made it. Uh, was it week 15 against the Patriots? Kind of went off. He could have made it then. Um, Studentsville, I mean, where he comes from, it's it's a lot of zone scheme, but it, the Dolphins run game was interesting last year. I was looking up stats on that and, and kind of watching tape in preparation for this. There's a lot of power, a lot of gap, a lot of draws. Um, Ahmed seems like a really good draw runner. Most of their zone runs were quarterback runs, and it was almost as much Fitzpatrick as it was Tua, which you'd think it was Tua running, you know, zone reading RPO and all that stuff. If they want, and and most defensive head coaches, as Flores obviously is through the years, most defensive head coaches want a balanced offense with a dominant back. So if they want that guy, they didn't get him in free agency. Uh, they have, what, four picks in the top 50? They can certainly do it in the draft. Yeah, he's talked a lot about his desire to run the football and to be physical and establish all those old-school principles that you talk about. Had a fullback yeah, on the roster for a long time as well. Who a defensive head coach go, I want to run five wide, you know, four verts, old-school Don Corey. You will never hear any defensive <laughs> ever. Ever. It'll never happen. So, That's yeah. exactly right. I'm, I'm just glad that you pronounced Eric Studisville's last name right, because I hear that pronounced incorrectly all the time. And so I, I really appreciate you getting that right. Let's let's go ahead and continue on that theme with Coach Studisville, one of the co-offensive coordinators here, and kind of his track record. You talked about the zone schemes, and we saw it in 2018 when he first got here. There was so much more nuance and more like kind of wrinkles thrown into the running game when Frank Gore got in town, and they had Kenyon Drake, and we're balancing those two guys. But he's been the run game coordinator here since that year. He's coached running backs for decades. He's typically, Doug, had 220-pound guys that can carry the bulk of the load, from Travis Henry to Willis McGahee, Marshawn Lynch, Sean Marino in Denver. That's been what he's worked with. So with those traits in mind, does anybody in this class stand out above the rest for you when it comes to those traits? If you want that sort of guy, I'm looking through my list here. Uh, Ramondre Stevenson from Oklahoma, six foot, 230. And you would think, oh, he's Brandon Jacobs. He's going to beat the crap out of you. Um, I compared him to Steven Davis. He's more 
it's interesting. He runs, he runs in a more agile fashion. Like a, he's a power back who runs like a, what I wrote was from zero to 10 yards. He's a bigger back who, who moves like a smaller back in a good way. Excellent short area agility for his size can bounce from gap to gap in a relative hurry. Ran through a lot of open gaps in Oklahoma's uh, mixed blocking line, kind of a quick, you know, equal zone. So when I'm looking at running backs, I want to see, well, how many times do you have to work your way out of something? There were times where Stevenson just had, uh, he could have, you could have driven a semi truck for the holes he had. That's not to debit him. Um, he does have the ability to break tackles and make gains after contact. But, and, and we're going to talk about Javante Williams from North Carolina. I watched, it's like when I was a kid, and I was a longtime guitar player, and I heard Jimi Hendrix before I heard Eric Clapton. So people would ask me about Eric Clapton. But I don't care about Eric Clapton because I heard Jimi Hendrix <laughs> first. I watched Javante Williams first out of all the running backs, and everyone else was kind of like, oh, hmm, eh, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, he's a, he's a decent power back. I think Trey Sermon, six foot two, fifteen. he runs like about a 230-pounder, and that's both good and bad. Um there are a lot of guys in this class who are under 220 and are just more versatile. So it really, you know, as far as power backs go, I mean, Javante, who I think is by far the best power back in this class, he's 5'10", 212. Now, Marshawn, uh, who you mentioned, obviously we're familiar with him up in Seattle, I think his top weight was 215. So if you want a 220-pound bruiser, um, I don't think there are a lot of those guys who also in, in this particular class who also present well-rounded, you know, feature back traits where you can have them in. If you're running no huddle, you're not time to take them off on third down. You can have them in there on third down. He can block, he can catch, he can do all those things. Uh, if you're a third down draw team, can he, you know, do that? Does he have patience? Can he cut back all, you know, all the stuff you want from a feature back. Um, I think Ramondre Stevenson of Oklahoma could be, sort of retrofit into that guy over time, but there isn't a 220 pound back in this class, at least from the pro day weights that jumps off the screen to me, you know, and goes, Hey, wow. You know, there, there isn't a Leonard Fournette here who's going to get picked fourth overall or, or any running back probably ever again, who's going to get picked fourth overall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really isn't that guy. What struck me watching the running backs in this class and putting my piece together for, for touchdown wire was, that it's kind of like when people say the defensive, the interior defensive line class this year isn't great, and people have said it's terrible. I'm like, well, yeah, but you have to know what you're looking for. If you want, you know, a nose tackle, there are these two guys. If you want a, an edge, you can, you know, flip inside and out. You might look at Milton Williams from Louisiana Tech or, or whatever. In the same way, these running backs are different. Now, you could look at Najee Harris, 6'2", 230. That's unofficial, um, and that's a guy who, if they're going to run gap to the same degree they did last year, um, he had 128 gap carries last year for Sports Info Solutions for Alabama. Alabama's a heavy gap team. That might be a really good fit, and I don't know if Najee is going to, you know, be there in the. I don't know if he's going to go in the first round. He might. He might not. Um, and the way I would characterize Najee Harris is he does everything well and almost nothing spectacularly. He's a sustainer. He led the NCAA with 81 first downs, but he didn't have a lot of breakaway runs. So it, it's really dependent on what kind of running back you want. You know, is he there at 36, the pick they got from Houston, one of the picks they got from Houston? Maybe. Um, 
But if Studeville wants that, you know, Ramondre Stevenson is one guy. Um, I think certainly Najee Harris should be another. And they had Ramondre Stevenson on the Senior Bowl roster down there in Mobile, and they had Najee Harris there as well. So a couple of uh, connections there to this Dolphins team. And, you know, I was going to compliment you for not taking the chalk there with Najee Harris. You did eventually work yourself back into Najee Harris. But that leads me into my next question about these tier rankings of these running backs in this class. Almost everybody that I've talked to or from my own eyes, it's it's Najee Harris, it's Javante Williams, it's Travis Etienne, then a significant gap, and then that fourth running back. And maybe you even might elevate a fourth into there. We talked a little bit off air about your favorite guy there at NC, or, or one of them at least. Um, I'm just curious, is that your top three? And how big is that drop from that top three to the next tier of running backs? It's not a, I mean, yeah. And it's funny because they're, they're radically different. Um, Javante Williams is, my comparison for him, he's an unholy combination of Marshawn Lynch and Nick Chubb. He's the best power back I've seen since Marshawn in his prime. Um, I think he's a better power back than Nick Chubb, which is kind of an astonishing thing to say. He's not a better power back than Derrick Henry, but he's a more explosive power back than Derrick Henry. Um, ETN, I compared to Jamal Charles. Um, I think if he winds up in Kansas, I know they just took Edward Solaire. Uh, if a guy like ATN wound up in an Andy Reid system, that would just be illegal. Um, <laughs> Kylan Hill from Mississippi State, I would say, is if he's, he may or may not be tier one, um, but he's if he's not, he's tier two A for me. He's you know, 116 broken tackles on 452 career carries. Um, he had 23 receptions last year for 234 yards with one drop and eight broken tackles in three games. So. He's really, you know, he's, he's pushed himself ahead as a versatile back. 5'10", 214. Now, when we say 214, but he's at 5'10", it, it's kind of like that Marshawn thing where you don't have to be 220 to be a power back. And Kylan Hill, to me, projects very well as just an, a good overall power back, a lot of leg drive, runs low to the ground, I, you know, what we call that competitive personality, which I know Brian Flores would love. Um, this guy is looking for a fight, as I like to put it on the field, not off the field. Um, you know, because you not. But, you know, he, he had that reduced 2020 season, but when you go back and watch what he did in 2019, uh, 15, 60 scrimmage yards, 11 touchdowns on 260 touches against really strong competition. My comp for him was a bit old school, it was Garrison Hurst. And, because as I said, it's tough to find five foot ten backs in the two hundred and fifteen pound range who run with Hill's power and contact balance, and I'm not going to compare him to Damian Tomlinson because you don't do that. But you know, he I think less so what Studisville may want or what Flores may want in those bigger backs, but kind of the paradigm they have now. I I think uh, I think Kylan Hill would fit that very well. That's kind of a do-it-all guy. Because here's the other thing. You got Tua in his first year as, you know, okay, he's the guy. Ryan Fitzpatrick is now in the nation's capital, so Tua is the guy. He's a timing and rhythm passer. And timing and rhythm passers, especially in Tua's case with an RPO element, which I think will increase, um, running backs are very important. Running backs who can catch are very important. Now, Najee Harris might be the best, well, not the best receiving back, but the best receiving power back in this class. Kylan Hill can also do that. You know, if you want to get into specific receiving backs, I have a couple more guys. Um, but I would say Kylan Hill is a two-way. And then you get into more specialists than generalists like Michael Carter, who 
share the backfield with Javante Williams, which is a terrifying thought. And Carter's more of a speed guy. Um, Kenneth Gainwell from Memphis, who I compared to Austin Eckler of the Chargers, very good receiving back. And going down my list here, Demetri Felton from UCLA. If you want a guy, former receiver, now running back, can run a full route tree, I compared him to James White of the Patriots, who I know you guys know very well down there in Miami, except to deal with it twice a year. Um, this guy, not a feature back, but always shows up in Belichick's offense because he can do, he can block. He can make the, the crucial third down run and he can catch all kinds of passes. Um, that's Demetri Felton. That's more his game. So going back to the main thing and, and sort of the tiers, I think this year, because if you look, I mean, Javante Williams, Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, and if you want to put Kylan Hill in there, they're really different guys. Um, I think Kylan Hill might be Javante Williams light, but the other three guys, I mean, they're, they're just radically different. So I don't know if it's tiers this year with running backs as opposed, you know, it's not really equivalent skill sets or remotely equivalent skill sets. It's a lot of different guys doing different things very well, and it's more the fit for your team than it is, hey, we have these top three backs, and we can take each one of them. Um, either any of those guys would take a different conversation between Chris Greer and Brian Flores and the offensive staff. Okay, how would we use him? How would we use him? You know, it, it's not so much – as I said, two similar guys, you just take the one you like the best. You really have to adapt your offense to each one of these backs. And I, I was hopeful. You mentioned Kylan Hill. I was really hopeful when he got down to uh, to play with Mike Leach this year that Leach would help kind of expand his passing game and, and develop that route tree and, and get, get us some tape with him as a pass catcher, but he ended up opting out after a couple of games, whatever it was. So we didn't get to see that full compliment, but man, he can, he can flat out play some ball. I'm glad you have him on that list. So you mentioned he's got, us that, he's got that potential. And again, if you want a smaller guy with a lot of leg drive and just because the old Walter Payton thing, where you're not just trying to avoid contact, you're initiating, you're looking for it. He's one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what they love here. That's what we talked about that with coach Flores and, and loving the physical aspect of the game. Now you had mentioned in a previous uh, answer that you're not sure if, if certain backs go in the first round. Do you think any of these guys go in the first round? Like, how do you see this, you know, the top, th that 20, I guess, I guess to pick 18 with Miami's, maybe where the running back idea starts to crank into gear. So from that 18 to maybe like 50 range, where do you see these guys going off the board? Yeah, I've done, I think I've done three mocks this year. I Maybe I've had a running back once or twice. I think I had Najee Harris going in the late 20s at one point. I don't remember which team. I think I mocked Javante Williams to the Dolphins in one of them with the later pick. Um, it, you know, it, it's really – I was looking this up in the last – since 2010, 17 backs have been selected in the first round. Uh, what is it? Six have been selected in the top 10. Well, seven if you want to include Todd Gurley. So the trend is obviously going away from that. Um, so it's not like we can look at league trends and say, oh, three running backs will be selected. It just depends, you know, if Andy Reid is there at 31 and he sees that Travis Etienne is still on the board and he thinks what I think, which is this guy would be absolutely insane in my offense, he might do it. He took a running back at 32 last year. Um, you know, Miami certainly, it, it's the reason I assume we're talking about this is the, the need for that feature back, whatever that means in this era, that need is there. Um, you know, Javante, in my mind, is the best back in this class, and it's not particularly close as far as overall skill set. 
I like Najee Harris. I like Travis Etienne. There are things they can and can't do. Um, and then you get into Kylan Hill, who, you know, you'd want to see more, might be a more complete back than the other two. Um, I would say Javante Williams is the only guy where I'd say first round grade, absolutely dependent on position value, where league trends were going, and, you know, just overall skill set. Like, how many boxes does he check? Yeah. So let me, let me ask you this then, Doug, because Dolphins fans on Twitter and, and the like, I, it's all about we have to get Najee Harris. We have to get Najee Harris. You see that, and I'm sure part of that has to do with the you know the re, re, reuniting with Tua Tungabailoa, the Alabama connection there. But you talk about Javante Williams being not even close to the rest of the class. Can you explain to a Dolphins fan who thinks that Najee is option one, two, three, and four, why Javante Williams might be even a better option? And I'm not saying that, Javon, that uh, Najee Harris is sure. a bad, bad player at all. Um, as I said, in from the games I watched, the, the report I put together, my comp for him was Steven Jackson. Um, I, I, maybe a, a, a Derrick Henry Light, who is a better pass catcher, would be a more modern comparison. Um, but what I've said about Najee Harris is he does everything well and very few things spectacularly. He's not going to get into those big plays, you know, the runs of 15 yards or more. It's not really going to happen. Javante Williams, I'm going to bring up the numbers here. Okay, per pro football focus, Williams forced 85 missed tackles in 2020, 76 as a runner, nine more as a receiver. Of all NCAA running backs in 2020, only Michael Carter, Williams' backfield partner, had more rushing attempts of 15 yards or more than Williams' 27 for 660 yards. So the first thing you have there is a really lethal combination of contact balance and forward motion with aggression to break tackles. And when he does break tackles, he's got this extra gear. He blocks like a linebacker. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> by your reaction, I'm sure you've seen yeah. some of those. Like, wow. Um, my only question about him, and I think he has more potential as a receiver. I've seen some people knock him as a receiver more than I would. I just think, you know, he's run a couple of routes because that's all he was allowed to do. Um, really, you look at the Notre Dame game where he had 11 carries for 28 yards and Notre Dame was run blitzing and they were run blitzing him specifically. So that's one of the best defenses in college football saying, okay, Javante Williams is our problem. And they were able to solve it. I would say what makes Javante Williams the best back in this class? I think he checks as many boxes as a Najee Harris or a Travis Etienne, probably more boxes than a Travis Etienne because I think Travis is one of the specialists. But I think the, he checks the boxes with bigger ink, if that makes sense. The things he does well, he does extraordinarily well. Like pop off the tape, oh my gosh, this is amazing well. Whereas Najee Harris is more of a, he's a sustainer. He's not a plotter. I don't want to bring the wrong impression across because now I, I, I feel like I'm making him sound like less spectacular than he is. He's a great receiver. He's an okay blocker. Um, you know, he's a good down after down runner. He's not going to break away and give you these explosive plays like Javante Williams will. And when you look at the ability to create explosive plays downfield as a runner and this particular power and contact balance and escapability, I just, I, you know, we talk about these terms like scheme specific, scheme transcendent. I think Javante Williams is the only scheme transcendent. You put him on any of the 32 NFL teams and he'll be your best back maybe on 26 of those teams, like right now, day one, the moment he hits the building, he's that good. 
So it's not to say that it, it's not to debit Najee Harris or, or ETN or whoever else you like. It's just when I look at the things he does well, he does at a level that makes him spectacular in so many areas that I just have to push him above the rest. You mentioned the 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 fact that he blocks like a linebacker. He was a high school linebacker until his junior season and then started playing running back because his coach was like, I think he might be a good running back as well. So you looked at some awesome facts there. He had the best elusive score in pro football focus history with missed tackles forced, led college football in yards after contact. He's 20 years old with less than 400 career touches than Najee, high school valedictorian, four-time state champion, and he also was a four-by-100-meter relay champion in high school as well. So he's got plenty of pelts oh, on the wall. Track stuff shows up, as you've seen, the track track. track history the background shows up after he breaks contact he's in the open field now it's a safety and now he's accelerating yeah. the safety's like <laughs> good luck <laughs> no I, I i i woke up this morning and i didn't think i was gonna have to do what javante williams getting faster <laughs> and coming right at my face didn't uh, wake up choosing violence that's for sure doug can we yeah. can, can we jump into this kind of speed round here and, and kind of sorry to cut you off there but I want to hear your your just quick takes on these traits that I, I listed here and get who the best in class is at those groups. Um, okay, Doug, so who is the best zone runner in this class? I would say ATM. Um, he shows the ability to cut back and, and, and find that gap really quickly. Um, I think Javante has that. He ran more zone last season than he had in his, his previous two. Um, but I would say as far as just the ability to spark off and find the cut and go, probably ETN. I would also put Kylan Hill as a possibility. And you had mentioned Ramondre Stevenson. Does he hold down your best gap runner trait? Uh, well, Ramondre Stevenson has my best uh, running through open holes. Probably <laughs> Najee Harris is the best gap runner in this class, certainly with the most frequency. Absolutely. How about your best breakaway speed back? Michael Carter, without question. Yeah, that's a quick uh, answer. That guy, uh, Demetri <laughs> Felton is also fast. Michael Carter is just a different kind of fast. Yeah, we, um, we saw that in the senior bowl too, didn't we? Yeah, I caught his, my comp for him was Clyde edwards Solaire. So if you want that, if you were looking at edwards Solaire last year, you can get him in Michael Carter this year. I love me some CEH last year. I think your best pass protector might be in that same backfield. Uh, Javante. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and your best RPO back? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, maybe Felton, just because he can run a diverse route tree. Yeah, definitely. That's that's uh, a that's a good one. Options I, and when I watched him, and then I do these comps, NFL comps, which I really sweat because I I know a lot of people are just getting into the draft. They watch the NFL all year, so you want to get a picture in your head. And I'm looking at height, weight. I'm looking at you know traits and production. I'm thinking James White. Well, if James White was in a heavy RPO system, he would dominate because he can just do so many things and kind of fool defenses. Um, you know, Carter would be a good RPO guy. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be important for you guys too this year for sure. That works. We'll take it. That's all I've got for you, Doug. I appreciate your time today. NFL editor USA Today, the NFL Wire. Where can the people find you on social, and what are you working on leading up to draft here uh, next week, Doug? Uh, NFL underscore Doug Farrar, uh, F-A-R-R-A-R. Uh, Mark Schofield and I just finished our top 11, which you know, we just talked about the top 11 running backs here. Uh, we finished all of our top 11 position versus scouting reports and advanced metrics. We're going to fold that into our top 50, the big board, which will go up tomorrow. 
um, as soon as I get it done. And then we'll have uh, a couple last mock drafts, a couple of podcasts, a bunch of scheme fit stuff, uh, grades for all the picks. Of course, the Dolphins will get A plus, A plus, no matter what they do. Because, you know, <laughs> at least I say that now. I love it. Um, <laughs> that'll get me on. Uh, yeah, we'll just be, we're, uh, we're rolling deep and uh, staying up late. Well, you guys do great work. Adding Mark Schofield was fantastic. I used to do two podcasts with him every year on Locked On Patriots, Locked On Dolphins crossover. Just hired Lori Fitzpatrick. You guys continue to kill it out there, Doug. Stay safe in the Pacific Northwest and go Mariners. Oh, yeah. The Mariners are good again. <laughs> well, for now. For now. <laughs> for now. Yeah. For now. That's not it. Thanks don't, a lot, Doug. Don't harsh our buzz, man. <laughs> And away he goes. A very fun conversation there with Doug Farr of USA Today, the touchdown wire. Plenty of good content there. He has his top 11 running backs list out as well as his recently updated draft board. He and Mark Schofield work tirelessly on that, giving you guys plenty of good content over there at USA Today. So Doug Farrar finishes out our position-by-position draft preview. Go back and check out the entire catalog quarterbacks, running backs, receivers, offensive line, defensive line, linebackers, defensive backs. We've covered it all. We had Chris Greer on this edition of the Drive Time Podcast with a very powerful statement to start there and some great football nuggets there for you as well as Dolphins fans and draft fans. As for that edition of the Drive Time Podcast, that's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. You can follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible Podcast. And of course, MiamiDolphins.com. And until next time, fins up.